Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's getting towards the middle of September and things are starting to get really, really weird in California. Suddenly, night has become day. Day has become night. The sun's disappeared. Nature is moving back in. It's getting its revenge. We deserve it probably as human beings. We we fucked up the environment so badly that suddenly we can no longer see the sun. Um, This idea of the reappearance or the revenge of nature, of course, is a familiar trope amongst writers, nature writers and thinkers on America. Uh, Matthew, and he has quite a name, Matthew Hongoltz Hetling, is uh, a New Hampshire-based author, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, journalist, and he has an amazing new book out with the most memorable title, I think, of a book I've seen recently, A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. Uh, Matt is memorable in many ways, and for the first time on Keenon, we have an author broadcasting from a car. Unfortunately, I'm not James Corden, so we can't have music for this. Um, I was going to call you James, but math, uh, a libertarian walks into a bear. This is a, a, a narrative in some ways about the revenge of nature in New Hampshire. It's, it's, it's a story about bears and libertarians and the way in which Americans are so deeply ambivalent about nature. What's the book about, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you've hit a uh, nail on the head there, Andrew. Um, uh, it is about kind of the capacity for people and communities of people to kind of uh, return to ferality and wildness. Um, and in this particular case, uh, I focus on a community that uh, through a, a series of kind of oddball events becomes a haven for libertarians who want to abolish taxes and abolish regulations and rules. And over the course of this project, they call it the Freetown Project, they, because they wanted to kind of liberate this small New Hampshire town. Uh, the the Grafton, New Hampshire, which, uh, the town is Grafton, and it's it's on the Vermont mm-hmm. border. Is that fair? That's right. Very close. And it has uh, yeah, a remarkable history, um, uh, both in political and in natural terms. You begin the book by describing the number of bears in the area. Uh, it, uh, uh, when the settlers arrived in, uh, in the 17th century, the, uh, the area around Grafton, New Hampshire was teeming with bears. That, that's right. And they were, you know, today we think of a bear most, in most contexts as kind of like a curiosity. Uh, but to those early settlers, they were very much a, uh, prevalent danger in their way of life. You know, they, they were a, a force to be reckoned with and they had to, contend with bears and other natural uh, challenges as they kind of carved out their, their settlements and their, their lives. Do you have any bears in that car, Matt? 
<laughs> I do not. Uh, I, I might go through a, a drive-through here if I get uh, if I get famished. Uh, so so uh, we'll, you'll be able to hear me order a Big Mac. Well, That'll be a first. Uh, for for people watching this on video, you uh, amongst authors, you look a little bit like a bear. But in all seriousness. Um, <laughs> The early settlers, as they were wont to do when it came to nature, essentially obliterated the bears. They murdered them all. Is that fair? Yes, that, that's right. They, they uh, uh, wiped them all out as part of their broader campaign to kind of tame the uh, wilderness. Uh, New England is one of the only places in the world where there's this kind of like whole scale development where they cleared out all the land, uh, all, all the forests, uh, so that they could create a farming agricultural economy and that then uh, saw that agricultural economy peter out to the extent that the, the woods could kind of come back in. There has been a tradition recently of, 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 of rewilding nature. Uh, Isabella Tree, the English uh, farmer, wrote a wonderful book about it, and she rewilded her farm in southern England. But the story you tell is not about a conscious rewilding. It's a consequence of libertarianism. Is that fair? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, as you uh, kind of do away with regulations and taxes, uh, that there's a wilding not only in terms of actual nature kind of creeping in, but also in uh, human nature. You know that that uh, we are all we all evolved in, in a place where we were kind of like you know fighting for our survival, and uh, the the libertarian ethos is so focused on the independence and the primacy of the individual uh, that other community values that might work to kind of uh, tame the landscape as a whole kind of fell to the side. Would it be fair to say, I got a sense from this in your, from your narrative, which is really compelling and amusing and, and, and memorable, um, that you're ambivalent about libertarians. On the one hand, you admire their ruggedness, their spirit, but on the other hand, you're suspicious of their complete contempt for government and rules and community. Yeah, I mean, I think there are things uh, to like about libertarianism. They, they have a, a very pure ideology that's based on some nice ideas. You know, I think we all value uh, individual rights. We all value liberty. Uh, we all value personal freedoms and personal responsibility. Uh, but in this case, those values haven't really been tempered by leadership. Uh, they've never been put in charge of a, uh, let's say, a state or a country. And as a result, uh, their ideas are very much kind of out of whack with the real world and the sort of compromises that leadership tends to uh, get bogged down in. And so in this particular town, uh, they did attain a very high degree of control and we saw what happened. The town more or less broke down over a period of 20 years. Uh, New Hampshire, of course, is uh, famous or infamous for its, its, its live free or die uh, ethic. Do you think this is a, a, a trope that generally applies to the United States or is New England and particularly New Hampshire very different from the rest of the country? Well, I think, you know, what we've seen in recent years in America is that um, what happened in Grafton is happening on a much larger scale nationally in that the agenda of the 
conservative Republican Party right now seems to be based much less on, you know, kind of a, a checklist of items of uh, principles that they want to enact through regulations and much more about just kind of like a drive for absolute freedom. You know, uh, don't tell me what I can do is, is what it boils down to. That seems to be kind of their one guiding principle. And so I think when we look at a government that is kind of tearing itself apart, knocking against things like uh, scientifically informed advisories about masks and the post office, for God's sake, uh, <laughs> you know, you start to ask, well, what does this party really stand for? And to me, the answer is absolute freedom. And I don't have to wonder what America would look like if it were to uh, achieve a lot of uh, momentum behind that idea, because I've seen it in Grafton. Uh, are libertarians essentially anarchists? Uh, we had a, an interview uh, last week with Vicky uh, Osterweil, who is a, a left anarchist who's essentially written a book in defense of, of, of looting. Um, do libertarians reject all laws? Not all laws. Uh, there is a distinction. They believe that there ought to be a government to essentially uh, maintain property rights and some kind of like, you know, basic semblance of uh, uh, rule, you know. So they would be in favor of having some sort of a, a national entity that they could rely upon should somebody else trespass on their land or, or try to deprive them of their property rights. Uh, and that's what distinguishes them from anarchists. Uh, they're in the same ballpark. Yeah, so book, do you want 95% or 100%? Your book then, uh, Matt, you're suggesting is a kind of, or the story in the book is, is, is a parable uh, about the dangers and appeals of libertarianism and its impact on nature and the way in which nature fights back. Briefly tell me what happened then in this latest libertarian chapter in the history of Grafton, New Hampshire. Yeah, well, you know, they came in, uh, they uh, made a conscious effort to come and kind of take over the small town. Part of their uh, avowal of freedom was to each deal with bears in their own way. And some people wanted to feed the bears uh, so that they could watch them eat because that's, you know, kind of fun and exciting. Others of them wanted to shoot the bears uh, as kind of like a defense of the homestead type uh, principle. And as a result, you wound up with bears that were very confused. And there was kind of a, a heightened state of danger from bears for the residents of this community. And that eventually led to the first uh, bear attack in New Hampshire state history in at least 150 years. Uh, and since I've uh, since, since that first attack, there have been two other attacks in the area. And so it's kind of bizarre to me that in 2020, in the United States, in heavily populated uh, New England, uh, we are seeing a cluster of bear attacks uh, that I trace back to this idea that every individual ought to respond to bears in their own way, rather than following a more community-directed approach. And the failing of the government to uh, implement its approach in a way that is acceptable to its citizens. I have to admit, Matt, and, and this reflects my own ignorance about bears, I didn't realize how ag aggressively 
carnivorous they were. Your, your book is full of stories of them eating children and kittens and other, uh, uh, other, uh, uh, other creatures. Are they um, dependent on, 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 on eating other uh, creatures? I thought they all ate berries and other, uh, other, <laughs> uh, other things that grew on trees. The vast majority of bears uh, get the vast majority of their calories from those types of food sources that you recommend. And that's what we want them to do. Uh, but when you have humans who are uh, maybe not tending their bird feeders or, or managing their things, uh, the danger comes primarily not because they want to eat a human, uh, but because they become habituated to humans as a way to access human-generated food sources. And then, uh, you know, something goes, something unusual happens, and that sparks a deadly conflict. You know, maybe the bear decides to nose its way into your home, and then you come out of your bedroom, and there's a bear that feels trapped in close quarters with you, and that can lead to a, a disastrous outcome. If bears could talk, and you had one, a friendly one, who wasn't eating you in, in your car in New Hampshire, um, what do you think they would say about this, this latest chapter in the libertarian history of New Hampshire? Oh, they love it. Uh, I, I think they are looking at this as a way to get a lot of human food on the cheap. And if, you, if a few of them have to pay for, uh, pay for libertarianism with their lives um, by being shot at a few times, I think that's, uh, that's an acceptable price for them. They'll take the Cheetos any day of the week. Is that their favorite food, Cheetos? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, they'll eat anything, man. They, they will. Uh, uh, there's one scene in the book where they take a five-gallon drum of uh, biodiesel. So it's basically, you know, two-year-old French fry grease, right. and they just drain it dry. <laughs> and the, you know, I was struck when they ate the kittens or when they ate the son of one of the original settlers, uh, they're not the friendliest of animals. I mean, we, we like to present them in cuddly, Disney-fied terms, but this is, this is nature at its purest. That's right. They're, they're a wild animal. They are wicked smart, which means that they have the capacity to try to solve problems rather than just kind of instinctually run away. And they're also wicked strong. You know, they, they are... Uh, uh, if a fox goes nuts and attacks you, that's a serious problem, but not typically a fatal one. If a bear goes nuts and attacks you, uh, generally speaking, you are done. Do you think that bears and libertarians have a lot in common? Are libertarians wicked smart? <laughs> libertarians are wicked logical. Uh, this is one of the things that I, I discovered while researching the book and in talking to libertarians in the community is that uh, they are they, they think more logically than either Democrats or Republicans. And that is a positive as far as I'm concerned. But they're kind of the flip side of that is that they are less able to form and build social relationships. And, and so uh, I would say in that respect, they are less well-off than bears, which can actually form quite a strong sense of community and really work with one another to solve the problems that their, their families face. Yeah, one of the, 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 the principal libertarians you describe in the book has a background as a, put, a computer programmer. 
I, I'm guessing that the kind of logical simplicity, perhaps, that you describe is reflected in uh, an embrace of, of technology and an ability to program. Yeah, I, I think so. I think uh, a lot of libertarians trend towards uh, you know technology industries and those sorts of engineering and programming jobs. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we've all uh, heard of a what, what is it? Swift's modest proposal, where if you get too logical, you can follow a train of thought and decide that it's okay to eat babies. You know, uh, you you need to uh, work hard to kind of root those uh logical skills into a real world space uh if we're to move forward as a country what do you think the bears would think of us waving our iphones at it trying to capture it on cyberspace <laughs> uh i think they're pretty ambivalent about that you give a bear a donut i'll let you do anything they're they're really uh pr pretty uh pretty pretty willing uh to uh, exploit themselves in that way. Before the Europeans showed up in New Hampshire, the, the, the bears, it seems, dominated uh, much of that part of the land. Have they learned in a, in a kind of Darwinian sense? Have they evolved since the arrival of, of humans? Are bears smarter now than they were 300 years ago? Yeah, well, you know, there were several species of bears in North America when humans first arrived, not the European settlers, um, but their, their um, earlier settlers who, who kind of came across the, the land bridge, those, those first indigenous peoples. And those people wiped out most of the species of bear. You know, any bear that relied simply on its size and strength to get through uh, got killed by humans. Uh, one of the only bear species that survived is the American black bear, which was able to use its brains to evolve, to think critically, and to uh, remove itself from harm's way when threatened, and to kind of figure things out. And now that humans are kind of reintroducing bears into the uh, uh, country, uh, bears are always going to kind of try to figure out how they can get the most reward for the least work. And if we present them with opportunities like uh, uh, dumpsters full of garbage and untended bird feeders and, and the like, um, then they will learn some very bad habits. Uh, actually, the bears do sound a lot like human beings, the, the, <laughs> the non-Puritan type. What, what about the indigenous peoples who, who, who were here before the, uh, the European settlers? How did they represent bears? Were they vilified? Were they I imagined in some sort of metaphorical sense? Uh, yeah, I think uh, most of the, the local indigenous peoples here were typically the Abenaki, um, and they had the bear appear as a figure in a variety of local legends uh, but those legends tended to be rooted in knowledge of individual bears and places. So there was a, a famous bear that they uh, told stories about called Slippery Skin, who would um, got very bold around their encampments and, and would come in. Um, but I think typically the Native American view of a bear was uh, more realistic, you know, more kind of rooted in the real natural world. And so they understood the relationship between their own actions and the chance of 
uh, attracting a bear unintentionally. And so they managed their own uh, practices in a way that protected their communities uh, from what was a very real threat when they came. And once in a while, you know, they, they feasted on bear meat. Uh, how does bear meat taste, actually? Is it good? Uh, I think it depends on what the bear ate. If the, if the bear ate a uh, uh, lifetime supply of Doritos, uh, it's uh, not going to taste as good as if it ate a more balanced and varied diet. But what is it like? Uh, beef? Reindeer? Uh, I, I think it, it's probably more like venison, uh, you know, deer meat than anything else. You know, it, it's, uh, it's uh, gamey, I, I suppose, is how uh, most people describe it. If there are any kids listening to this, which I doubt it, uh, Matt, they're going to be begging their parents now to take them to New Hampshire to see some bears. How many are left in the state? Uh, right now, there are about 6,000 bears in New Hampshire. Uh, so quite a lot. That number has doubled over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. And their numbers are growing kind of in spite of a state-directed effort to reduce their populations. And so uh, the state typically tries to manage bear populations within certain population targets, and uh, it uh, has not gone well in recent years. The bears are kind of outpacing the populations that they're meant to uh, maintain. Well, if you can't make it to New Hampshire to see some bears, the ones that are left, I would strongly recommend A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, the utopian plot to liberate an American town and some bears. Strange title. And the author, uh, Matthew Hongoltz-Hetling, uh, is my first guest to broadcast from a car. And as I said, I just wish it a bear would pop up behind him. Matt, uh, everyone should read your new book, which is a marvelously energetic, entertaining, and sometimes uh, a profound uh, take on lib both libertarianism and the, the crisis of nature and of wildlife in America. Well, you're, you're stuck in a car in New Hampshire. I hope you have a home, Matt. You don't live in a car, do you? <laughs> I am happy to report that I do, in fact, have a home and a lot you're of You're not life. too impoverished an author. Uh, what <laughs> should people be reading in these weird times? Uh, your oh, that, New Hampshire, and uh, I assume that even New Hampshire has the coronavirus, does it? Uh, it does, but uh, we're in a bit of a, a COVID desert. Uh, I'm fortunate living on the border between New Hampshire and Vermont, the two states together uh, reporting maybe only about 30 cases a day. So I'm, well, that's I'm good. very fortunate, uh, yeah. I hope you're wearing um, your mask. But what, what, should, uh, what should people be reading? What else in addition to your book? Yeah, uh, two, th two books that I would recommend. Uh, one that I found to be just tremendously exciting was Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind uh, mm. by uh, uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, the other one uh, that is just out this month, uh, I haven't gotten very far in it, but I know I love the author and I know I love uh, the topic. It's called The Deepest South of All, uh, True Stories from Natchez, Mississippi, uh, by Richard Grant. And he has some amazing insights into race relations uh, looked at through the kind of uh, very backwards uh, prism of uh, small town communities in the Deep South. And I like it in part because he really kind of spotlights uh, the quirkiness and absurdity 
of small communities, which is part of what I hope to touch on with my book. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.